<laughs> Welcome to the MacGuffin Men. I'm Alex, and with me, as usual, is James. You can check out our website, themcguffinmen.com, to keep up on our most recent episodes. Uh, last time we talked about Paths of Glory, the um, Stanley Kubrick film. Before that was Pablo Lorenz No. Uh, before that was Unbreakable, and somewhat uh, appropriate for what we're going to be talking about today. The movie before that was On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Um, so yeah, themcguffinmen.com. All right, James. Here we more are. More appropriate, more appropriate than I would have ever guessed. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There's no really need to do an intro on this one. It's a James Bond movie, so everybody kind of knows. Uh, it's James uh, Daniel Craig's fifth and uh, last, and it's No Time to Die. And it is. And it's we're his last final. It's his last final Bond movie. <laughs> yes, it is his, his last <laughs> final Bond movie after having done two previous final Bond movies, I believe. Because that's what he was saying from Skyfall on, right? Like he didn't want to do it. Yeah, I think that's my yeah. understanding, at least. The famous it, quote about him threatening to slash his wrists is after <laughs> is on the Spectre press tour. But yeah. 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 <clears throat> uh, so we kind of I, it sounded like you were a bit on the fence about doing one it just kind of because uh, we've talked about bond a few times we've talked about a lot of the new ones we've talked about um under majesty's secret service because that's sort of an outlier and uh, a, a unique one in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and you felt that there was uh, enough here to to talk about this one again right yeah exactly because i you know that's something we would have done eight years ago is just talk about a new thing because it's a new installment and something that we're interested in you know but we kind of want to uh, as the years have progressed we kind of want to focus on things that are actually involve us saying something new and i was uh fully surprised to be wrong in my assumption that um this wouldn't have enough new stuff to talk about and you know i didn't just want to do content for the sake of content i want to learn something and i felt like i learned something in this movie and um and i found it really uh impressive and um i will say as somebody who doesn't have a strong inherent attachment to james bond as a character i found um that they kind of really stripped away the things that have sort of kept me from enjoying a james bond movie and um and i think some of that some of the choices they make throughout this movie stylistically, structurally, I think the structure is, um, I know it's gotten some criticism, but like I, I found it kind of interesting. Um, and I don't know, it was just, I was truly surprised by this movie, uh, basically start to finish. And um, it's certainly messy. I'm not here saying it's it's the best movie I've ever seen. Um, I think just a movie like this is always by nature uh, going to be messy in some capacity. And But the things that were that people have complained about tend to be things I don't care about. And uh, it just felt like a Bond movie that either on purpose or by accident was made specifically for me. <laughs> and I really <laughs> loved it because it's a Bond movie that turns into a Mission Impossible movie, which is a, a franchise I'd like more than the Bond franchise, you know? So I <laughs> yeah. just found that that really interesting. Yeah. And so structure wise, do you mean just not starting with uh, kind of him in the middle of a mission and then... Yes. You'd- that for 10 or 12 minutes and then intro and then you know what we come to expect from a typical bond movie do you think it it, it veers in that way so i think that um the the thing that i'm referring to you're right but the thing that i i felt sort of lacks in basically and i'm talking specifically about the daniel craig uh movies um the ones before have a little bit more variance but the first two acts or you know two-thirds of the movie tend to be pretty 
entertaining and good. And then the third act usually revolves around you caring about this character. And I've never really felt like I truly care about James Bond. You know, like Skyfall, great movie. Very good action movie, even though it's like the Dark Knight comparisons are just w- way too similar, right? But uh, <laughs> yeah. Or they're, they're just way too close. But um, but that, that whole final bit at the farm just goes on endlessly. And um, I didn't feel myself attached you know you get a little bit of of pang when you know judy dench dies because you're sad about judy dench because everybody likes judy dench you know um (laughs) but it's because they couldn't land that sean connery uh appearance as that as the character the um game master that that sequence just doesn't work because you kind of just you just sort of lose the i don't know you just don't care it just goes on for so long and as somebody who doesn't have an inherent interest in bond I, it just doesn't work for me and that's true of some elements of basically every daniel craig movie in the in the last act casino royale is another famous one where um people seemed moved by vesper's death and interested in their relationship and i just don't i don't see it that's when i actually watched again recently and i i remain steadfast in my belief that the that uh, that whole uh basically final third of that movie is just I just don't care you know and and her yeah. death her death does not land at all um and I think the reason this movie works in its third act which is still structurally kind of similar in that way um in that it does depend on you caring about this person is the way that to get to that third act when they're going through the finale and the um Safin's lair you the structure of the movie is such that you get all of the bond stuff out of the way and you're sort of playing with some of it um and stripping away the rest of it so that you can get to this really focused sequence that that goes on for a long time you know but um you get all of the things that you have to do in a bond movie out of the way and i found that really interesting and um you know the cuba sequence which is a highlight of the movie and as is the italy sequence the action scene at the beginning those are both like crackerjack action sequences they're so good and they're so bondy you know yeah and but i think by by doing those and sort of the movie working its way through those you are able to get to a point where um you're just more attached to bond throughout the movie and as he progresses through that that final third um that just i found really compelling and also i think the fact that like you pointed out the movie doesn't start from his perspective it doesn't end from his perspective and even the cold open ends from uh madeline's perspective you know like when we're seeing james bond um you know we see her her get on the train and we're seeing from his perspective and and uh hers looking back but once the train starts to move we're on the train with her you know we're following with her and i think the that much uh removal from the perspective of james bond i think is is does a lot of the table setting for the movie and i think that continues throughout you know and i think that's something like that is really helpful you know yeah no i think that's true i think that <laughs> stepping back and i it, <clears throat> even that's like, you know a pretty minor thing i think you know as you said just changing the perspective on the train to not be either at or um, from bond's view or gazing at bond the whole time mm-hmm. that's not a huge departure but i do think it's helpful and i think that it is starting to address in some small ways what people are finding sort of untenable about bond in the 21st century mm-hmm. um and as you in one kind of smaller note related to that that the, the cuba sequence which i think is <clears throat> great and not overly long and just done really well and has some 
<laughs> some wonderful performances by yeah. Anna Darvis. Oh, yeah. um, uh, and there's some... there are so many threads happening simultaneously and really quickly, and you never really lose track of any of it in Cuba. Yeah. I think it's so cool. Which is hard to do. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you were saying it does a lot of the Bond things. It gets a lot of the Bond things out of the way. It also doesn't do some of the Bond things where she's immediately seduced or he does or says something awful to this female character. Yep. And, yep. you know, we, we just we get to skip that. I don't think that everything's perfect in this movie with, with that on that front. But I think that, again, just makes it a lot more um, palatable. But well, it's we not can... even it's not even that. It's just that she just shuts him down full stop you know like the whole um him sort of saying oh we're doing this you know do we have time for this or whatever and she's just like what are you talking about like she doesn't even compute that this could possibly be a a real situation and i enjoyed that very much yeah um and then yeah okay so we should talk about the intro for for a bit more because i think that the idea of that being not only not a typical intro of you know uh, in media res uh bond sequence um it's just a very compelling sequence oh, yeah, you know absolutely. Out, outside of the way that it it differs from a typical intro um it's just more of a horror movie thing and sometimes you know we get pieces of that in other bond movies but it's definitely not typical um it's just the sequence of this hooded figure walking towards the house is just you know this very frightening image mm-hmm. and obviously it gets more frightening and extremely um realistic ways when you know exactly what's happening and uh, what the danger is but just that sort of <laughs> impending doom uh without being so on the nose i think is something that's often lacking from this franchise that's often extremely on the nose mm-hmm. and a-, a lot of different choices throughout that just make the sequence really compelling to me i think the choice of the mask is a good one um it's not such an absurd costume that you don't think anyone would ever do this but uh it's still you know frightening enough for for it to land really well um and the you know that that house right near the lake right near the frozen lake in, in norway all that i think just adds um this wonderful visual element and it's not like we've never seen anything in this franchise go to the snow or in Scandinavia or anything. But I think just kind of front to back, that whole thing really seemed to grip every t- every audience I saw it with, including myself. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. And it's also something where, you know, because you don't necessarily, you know, I'm sure Bond super fans immediately are like, oh, it's Madeline, you know, like uh, they've watched Spectre more times than we have and remember these things, you know, they, yeah. um, they think about them this movie bef- more before going to see it and and it is like you said it's um it's an opening sequence from a bond movie where you know the ending isn't going to be bond can save the day because it doesn't feel like bond is ever present and something in the way that that scene is set up is it never seems like a possibility that bond is even going to show up you know and yeah. um and it just sort of it allows a bond movie to start with something that one is surprising right off the bat just the fact that they're doing this and two um establishes a way where in the first scene of this bond movie you're not going to see james bond you know you get the gun barrel intro but you're not going to see him in a scene from the movie you know yeah yeah no i think that's right um and and by the time we do see bond i think it's a bit different you know the first thing is him saying are you okay to to madeline i think that's uh, a different sort of bond uh that we're used to and i think that that um 
compared to some of his other intros, I think is is a stark contrast. Well, for sure, and it's it's somebody specifically saying I'm not in control because he's asking something that he doesn't know the answer to, right? Like you don't need to ask a question uh, to something you already know the answer to, right? And that's yeah. sort of, I think, just sort of even the small decision of something as small as that, like that's a, just a very human thing to do. But since it's James Bond, that's like a, that's more than a baby <laughs> step, you know. Yeah, and even yeah. though the 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 Daniel Craig movies in general have had a lot of baby steps towards um, quote unquote modernizing a character that's basically impossible to modernize. But, um, but the way that that has been talked about over the years, um, this is the first movie where I sort of like saw that in reality in the movie, you know, like it's just, it is, I think maybe just because the, the, uh, it was just, the, the movies are so over the top with their treatment of women um, in the past that like just treating a woman with vague respect <laughs> was considered a, a huge step up for this franchise. But uh, but yeah, I uh, this is the first movie where I really felt this is the first Daniel Craig movie where I really felt like James Bond was a human being. And even though they've been talking about him being portrayed as a human being for four or five movies now, uh, this is the first time I truly felt it, you know, in the presentation. Right, and that's a good thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and is there anything you want to get to before that um, that uh, set piece that starts with Vesper's tomb blowing up? Um, <laughs> well, yeah, and I think it, it. I think the. I mean, I I really like the way that this movie. Um, it sort of plays to the nerds a little bit in a way that I found interesting in the in the opening in that um, those bells that you hear in the middle of the action sequence when they're sitting in their car surrounded um, that are very reminiscent of on at the end of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And then before that, um, when they're just walk- I believe they're walking to their hotel room um, or wherever they're staying and Daniel Cr- or Bond says, we have all the time in the world. Like those signifiers are just screaming at me, Madeline's going to die. Madeline's going to die. This isn't going to, this isn't going to end well, you know? And I thought yeah. the way that um, the movie, and I'm sure there are way more references to past Bond movies that I'm just missing. But I think the one that, that really jumped out at me is in that intro where everything's idyllic and um, even just visually if it's not the same car, it's a car that looks very similar to the one from Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Just the way that it just sort of pulls me in um, and just sort of leads me to believe that what happens at the end of Honor Majesty's Secret Service is going to happen here, um, which is also what happens towards the end of Casino Royale. And I was just like rolling my eyes and then they're just like, nope, that's not what we're doing. And I really I really loved that, um, having the, the rug pulled out from under me in that sequence. And um, later on in the movie when that same line gets used again I found that really compelling as well but um, the sequence is just great you know like that action sequence is so cool and such a good welcome back to uh, a big ass action movie <laughs> with James yeah. Bond and the way that it starts is really interesting because we've talked about um, sort of being trying to identify with him more as a human being and the first note of action is the explosion right and the explosion uh, knocks out his hearing and the movie reflects what he is hearing and I think that putting us in his shoes in that moment is really really cool and it struck me as something again not a Bond scholar um, 
that felt like something that doesn't happen in a Bond movie, you know, and how we're sort of like we're confused. We don't understand the source of the explosion. We're figuring these things out with him. Um, but we're both as the audience and Bond, we're at square one. Right. And the way that he is at a disadvantage because of this um, really is it's just a really cool decision and then made eat like double they double down on how cool it is when he notices the car coming at him and ducks behind a rock <laughs> and i thought that was just the coolest thing in the world and it's also yeah. a really good transition to bringing it back in the full sound and um i just thought it like as the first real strong um if we're calling the the cold open a, a horror movie sequence the first true action sequence i thought the way that it grabs us and pulls us into it as we're James Bond or with James Bond I thought was really really cool and effective yeah no I think you're right and then the the sound going out <laughs> brings two things to mind one is the movie Copland which we've talked about absolutely we, we, we both love mm -hmm. and uh <clears throat> Heflin the Sly Stallone character uh his his uh his audio troubles later on is the result of weapons in that movie mm -hmm. um and then another thing is just, yeah, being put in his shoes like that, I think you're right, is effective. And not that this is carried throughout the entire film, but one thing you always see about movie goofs is how loud explosions or gunshots really mm -hmm. are and how people would not be able to talk or, um, you know, hear small things immediately after a gunshot. And this actually seems to affect him i'm not going to say realistically because I, I just don't know that not that much about i don't know eardrums and or explosives yeah but um the fact that it seems to be aligned a bit more with reality and again that's not something that continues i don't think but um that does really i think zero in with uh your ability to to stay with that character right away and then yeah once that bridge sequence starts once that <laughs> that car shows up and uh the way that the audio comes in of that car getting nearer to him the the jump over the side of the bridge with the rope um the, the motorcycle stuff oh, the motorcycle just... stunts are so cool yeah the the one up the steps and then over the wall and landing on the the cobblestone streets is just um yeah once in a while i said watching... i said whoa out loud <laughs> i was by myself you know like i mean i was surrounded by people but i was i yeah. entered the theater by myself anyway continue. yeah no just once in a while in the better bond movies or maybe even in isolation some of the lesser ones um you just kind of get that feeling in your gut of you're watching a bond movie like yeah. it you know like the 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 essence of it has been uh, boiled down into a, a short sequence or even a short stuff like that and that is exactly it you know you're in, you're in europe there's danger uh <laughs> got a cool vehicle you know it's just it's it's doing the things you expect it to do and it's doing them well and so that um outside of some of the ways that we've talked about this changing or trying to be modern and how to balance those two that's not something that needs to change and that's something that shouldn't change and if you mm. if you can do that properly um you know, we need to keep seeing that. Yes, absolutely. So I, I will sign up for whatever big budget spy movie with human beings doing stunts that you want to <laughs> throw at me. I'll watch them all. I'll probably watch them all twice, you know? Yeah, and the uh, later on in that sequence, just another thing that I really like, another thing done well visually, and uh, sometimes Bond movies, I find, don't always nail tension really well. Mm. Um, that's something that... I think sometimes gets overlooked in a lot of good action movies. Mm -hmm. The the 
when he and Madeline are in the car and the, I don't know, top henchman with the, the who's referred to as Cyclops, okay. um, is shooting the windows, the, the bulletproof glass, and over and over and over, you just see it start to break, and you have to, I mean, you just know that there has to be some point that bulletproof glass <laughs> stand up anymore. Yeah. And, you know, it, you see it flaking and, and shaking and coming apart, and um, you're just fully with, you're fully with Madeline saying, you know, do something. So this is, this can't continue much longer. I don't know how much longer, but this is obviously not a permanent solution to the, the mess we've found ourselves in. And then again, something very badass and Bondy happens yeah. again. And he just, um, you know, he uses one of the gizmos in his car to do yeah. something awesome before driving away. So, yeah. So, and that's, that's a moment where um, I agree with you that the tension is, um it, yeah the tension is there but that is a real good example of the elements of the Daniel Craig Bond character that I've never really been a big fan of where he's just stoic and he's always got the answer so he doesn't it doesn't matter if there are literally bullets being shot uh, shot <laughs> uh, a, a literal foot away from his head you know uh, yeah. because he knows that he's going to get out of it he knows and he is also um he has been been offended by this human being that's in the car with him so he's just like oh i'm just mad i'm gonna be silent and (laughs) and let her deal with the torment of this uh um this moment and that's something where it's the it's the old it's the bond that like is a cool action movie but not something that i'm gonna get attached to and i think that um again that's the the first action scene we see him in you know it's the um it's still very much in the we're making a james bond movie part of the thing and or part of the the movie and um and so yeah as at that point i'm very much like this is rad this is so cool this is a great way to get out of this situation why hasn't anybody thought of this before but um but it's not something where i'm necessarily emotionally attached in any way just because at that point of the movie it's still just a bond movie to me you know and yeah, it's, yeah yeah it's cool but it's not going to be something that that i'm thinking about when i'm walking home you know yeah no that's i i get that and that could be i don't know like kingsman or something right like yeah. where the the care and that's not to shit on kingsman because i think we both had a lot of fun in the first kingsman movie mm-hmm. um but that's that's more of an action movie apart from characters yeah yeah exactly um i mean we kind of talked about the cuba sequence that and we would be talking about it uh talking saying similar things um again but it i so my theory on this movie is that it would be a lot better if Rami Malek's character was played by somebody better than Rami Malek and Anna Dar- uh, and uh, and Anna Darmas's character was played by somebody slightly less compelling than Anna Darmas. Oh no. Because, you know what? I, I admittedly went back and forth on Rami Malek who I have no prior connection with okay. by any means. Yeah. Um it is a like to call a Bond villain redundant seems stupid. Yeah. Um, that's you know it's again we've talked about how it's it's always the struggle of updating something without fundamentally rewriting what it is. Yeah. And I think that's um, it's at such a crux by this seems like the hardest reboot that they're ever going to have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> for the way this film was written and for i don't know society where it stands right now <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> I, I, and i know we might not survive until the next bond movie you know like yeah. as a society. exactly there's there's a lot of things that are probably a little too heavy that we 
people don't come to us to listen for. But yeah. um, Jim, I've got some news for you. People no don't come to us. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. This Let's is for that. us. We're screaming into the void. That's fine. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And so I, I don't know. I did kind of go back and forth with him. Whereas I want to hear what. It, What's the case for having Anna Darmus be worse than she is? Is this you just because it's, too su- much it's such a movie? bummer that she's not in more of the movie? You know, she's yeah. so compelling. Yeah, in, in July, I, or is it just that sort of intangible thing? That it's that intangible thing. Yeah, yeah. Where okay. the movie it the movie feels so much more lively when her and Daniel Craig are together. Um, in a way that I think this movie really showed me that. Um, I. I find Daniel Craig very compelling as a solo human being and um, in a way that I haven't seen in other Bond movies and Knives Edge is such an ensemble that, um, and same with Logan Lucky, that, you know, he's basically in the scene with another movie star in every, in every moment of, of each of those other Daniel Craig movies that I love. Sometimes, sometimes seven in Knives Edge. Yeah, exactly. And um, and it's not like this movie lacks for... Um, lacks for incredibly talented actors you know yeah uh, no time Jeff- to die it's it's Je- filled jeffrey, with... jeffrey wright christoph waltz there's there's a lot of goodness in here exactly it's just sort of there's an element of just a, i don't know there was a, there's an energy about that cuba sequence that is her, <laughs> her and him together in a scene there's just something exciting about that and i it's something i can't uh, put my finger on but i just i love that sequence it helps again that it's an unbelievable action sequence and and the degree of difficulty of it is so high and it looks so gorgeous the permanent twilight look that they're at that they're at um in a movie that is top to bottom gorgeous like <laughs> that sequence is is uh, as good as it gets and i just i just felt that um she's almost too good in that everybody misses her once she's gone and um and the movie's still good but you're kind of just like I'd like Paloma to come back a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so it's I think it's a combination of her having that sort of intangible energy and then that being a really I don't want to say taut because it's pretty light in a lot of ways at certain times. You know, there is some kind of like <laughs> dancey rhythm and a bit of levity to mm-hmm. some to parts, despite the fact that there's horrific violence going on in the world's at stake. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. um that as well as just being sh- shot in such a compelling way like just each time that i saw when she's sort of lying on the ground and shooting those three people in you know all different directions shot from above so it just cool. yeah it's just exactly what you're hoping for um without doing the things that you weren't hoping for so yeah i yeah i think we're right to sort of highlight that again because in isolation i think it's got to be the strongest 10 minutes mm-hmm. um yeah if you're like sitting down to watch an action movie that's the te- that's the 10 minute sequence that you're pointing to you know yeah for sure so yeah i think it's i think it's worthy to to kind of highlight that and then we we might see her again i don't know every everything i've been reading is people just loving that sequence and loving her <laughs> yeah and, absolutely and given um yeah yeah the, the bond producers never know what's coming next so they have no idea if we'll see her again uh but uh but yeah if there's another bond movie and they don't recast literally every human being then she'll be back you know yeah that's right yeah yeah that seems right yeah um so 
what should we talk about next? I okay, uh, so we could talk about villains in the actual plot, but I don't know if that's just so. Yeah, that, you. that's something that people have said to me. Um, I've talked everybody that I know that I've seen that has seen this movie. I've asked because I was I really loved this movie, and again, know that it's messy, but it, it was a sort of an inherent messiness that I expected for big budget uh, final send off to iconic character, yada yada yada. Um, so I was surprised when I, when I like found I was started to hear from other people. It was like, oh, people don't just love this movie, you know. So I started reading negative reviews, and a lot of people are pointing to the the um, the villains' uh, plan or just it just being confusing. And I was like, I don't care, you know. I do. I couldn't tell you what his plan was, but I bet it's world domination, you know. Like it. Well, um, yeah, and, and it, like. This is the time you're going to start <laughs> caring about that. Exactly. My, ca- my counterpoint to every one of my friends that has said that is like, can you tell me the the uh, grand plan of literally any James Bond villain? There are 24 of them, uh, any one of them from memory, you know? And the closest somebody got to was Javier Bardem wanted to have sex with Daniel Craig. And like, n- <laughs> not incorrect, but yeah. <laughs> that's not, that. I don't think that was his, uh, his more villainous side you know like yeah um, yeah exactly and um and yeah it's just we talked about this a lot with tenet like the reason i couldn't attach myself to tenet a big part of the reason was because the villain wasn't compelling because he just wanted to i'm dying so everybody should die and that's about as much information as we get with safin and i think this movie is well served by him not being in it a lot and um them really focusing just on james bond and the bond team um but uh, but yeah, and I, I just in general never like Rami Malek, so yeah, that doesn't help. But yeah, I um, <laughs> I did you read the synopsis on Wikipedia? Uh, yes, but I don't remember it. Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite, one of my favorite things that they do, and when I say they, I meaning the people who edit Wikipedia, which yeah. is an amorphous group of people. I understand. Um, but in the synopsis, it says. Just describing that, uh, the Cuba sequence, it says, <laughs> Blofeld uses a disembodied, quote, bionic eye to lead the meeting and order his members to kill Bond with, quote, a nanobot mist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because there's a point when you're trying to write a co- like a coherent summary of this movie, you're like, I don't know, this is what they said, man. Like, yeah. I-, I don't know what else to tell you. Yeah. Uh, which I think is a good summation of, you know, just trying to apply logic to this uh yeah it's i I'm, I'm sort of with you i think that um them having a pseudo medical threat was you know prescient in a depressing way yeah um i think nanobots are cool <laughs> not, <laughs> nothing i'm missed but yeah uh, <laughs> uh no i i yeah i'm i'm pretty fine with it and if we're just gonna talk in the context of broader bonds you know i thought the evil lair was cool you know the evil lair is very cool and it's (laughs) it's visually based on one of um i think it's you only live twice it's uh it might be connery's last bond um which the set designs in that movie are awesome but there's a there's a lair in a volcano in the finale um that it is sort of inspired by and and you can sort of Without having seen that movie a million times, when I saw that layer, I was like, oh, cool. I think this is a You Only Live Twice thing, you know? Um, right. And, and so and visually, it's very interesting in the way that they've sort of integrated lights that 
into like just these sticks of light sticking out of the the uh the pools of poison water or what it doesn't matter um (laughs) the liquid the liquid that kills the russian scientist um the it it was just a, a really compelling sort of um set and also since so much of the movie takes place in these outside um locations you know and in these actual locations um basically everything but the stuff uh taking place at mi6 right you're in what is visibly um some sort of cool looking city and then you get to this place that looks totally different and it's almost like you're trapped there for the last 40 minutes of the movie yeah and you know it's yeah i think it looked very cool i think it's um uh, between Russia and Japan, you know, it kind of evokes some of the post-World War II slash Cold War stuff that Bond has just been kind of never really to escape, for better or worse. Mm. You know, I think that politically that's compelling in that way, but just the way that it looks is awesome. Um, and, and the one, th- I mean, the one thing about the the motivations of the villains kind of not making sense or being uh irrelevant or you know useless um I-, I wonder if that's something that needs to change too you know i wonder if, if we if we start caring more about bond as a person if caring more about these people is going to be part of it and i think that it, they tried it a little bit with blofeld and i think they tried it a little bit with um i'm blanking on Javier bardem's character but him yeah um you know i, I it seems like they want to do it but i don't know that was also just the joker yeah, I mean the last three movies. The last three villains have been the Joker, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. And, the, and he, he pledges Joker. Very specifically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and this is the third Bond movie in a row that features uh, the villain sitting across from James Bond and saying, "You know, we're not that different." You know, it's <laughs> yeah, the, know. the Joker thing. But you know, in fairness to uh, the Bond movies, Nolan took Bond movies and put Batman in them. You know, like those are those are uh, Batman movies through his memories of bond movies you know um and so to go back to the the point about us not caring about the the villains or the nuts and bolts of how the villain does uh what the villain does i think that to me it doesn't matter if it's sort of this villain where um like safin where we don't necessarily know what his plan is or his plan doesn't make sense or we can't really follow it the point of an action movie to me is to to make me feel like i'm having some sort of ex- experience along the lines of what the character is having you know and um i think this movie is highly influenced uh at least part sorry at least partially influenced by mission impossible fallout um and the in a in sort of a different way the reason that i'm able to ha- follow that character's experience is because tom cruise is physically doing those things and it's obvious that he's physically doing those things and we're following along with him um and no time to die does a different version of that where it does sort of pull you along and make you feel like you're experiencing things with bond um, both emotionally and physically and i think that's that's the key to an action movie and if if you have one of those two things I think you need either the villain to make sense or you need to care about the hero more often than not. You're going to care about the hero just because of how, um, how movies tend to work. You just get more time with the hero. Um, 
I think as long as you nail one of those two two elements, then then it just works. And to go back to the tenant example, I don't think the the protagonist was a particularly compelling character, right? So you don't have either of those two moment two two pieces working. So it's just an action movie, you know. And yeah. that's something that I can say about uh, most of the previous parts of um, of the Daniel Craig Bond movies is that uh, the villain makes the same amount of sense as it does in any Bond movie, and I didn't feel compelled to as compelled by Daniel Craig's James Bond. Whereas in this one, you've got one of those two. And I think the movie really is able to pull you along with him because of that. You know? Right. Okay. So then I have a question. So this one, we, we have Blofeld come back and we've seen some of his backstory and his prior relationship to Bond. His foster brother Blofeld, which I totally forgot about. I know, but this is why I'm like, you know slowly slogging through uh yeah. the fact that they have a pre- previous relationship because i i kind of felt the same way um and safin has this relationship with madeline who obviously has a relationship with bond so there are these pieces there and i mean do they not lean on them enough or do they lean on them too much like you're saying that you i never remember them but didn't remember yeah. them until you read them or you knew that there were the, these pieces and i'm wondering if and this is a question that I think applies to a lot of this stuff. In making Daniel Craig's Bond a character that she care about, they've serialized his run mm-hmm. of five movies a lot more than they used to, right? You know, the, 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 it's not as though every Bond started in isolation, but sometimes they do completely, and when they don't, it's usually kind of small pieces of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so is this struggling from having too much of that now is that what's making this worse and is that contribute there's there's a lot of things here is that what's making this movie so long and obviously to some people they feel that they're getting pretty bloated now and yep. is that because of you know let's give madeline more let's give Safin more um it, it makes it makes him a character that we care more about it le- it lets um you know, on the pro side, we have a chance at caring more about these characters. Whether that works or not, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. But um, it gives us more of a complete arc of Daniel Craig's Bond. You know, this the one thing I think that is undeniable is that this feels like the ending of something in a way that Pierce Brosnan's ending didn't feel like something. Uh, Roger Moore's ending doesn't really feel like something. Sean Connery's doesn't really feel like uh, like much. Is that is that worth the payout? And it, it seems like we're going to keep doing this. And I don't know if having all these pieces and bringing Paloma back and um, or doing a big reset feels like just another phase of the Bond cinematic universe. I, 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 I That's kind of one of the big things I want to know from you is that are we ever going to get away from this? And is that better or worse for the character? I have no idea. Um, I think you have asked me an impossible question. It's very tough. <laughs> um, so, so I think that. But do you see what I'm getting at? I do, a hundred percent. Okay. I think that. I actually don't know. And if you ask the broccolis what they think, they don't know either. You know, like mm-hmm. um, I think, I think they have to get some time away from this one to know what they're going to do next. And of course, it's going to be some sort of reset. Um. And I think that responses to this was so 
or to Daniel Craig as James Bond over time has just been positive, you know, over yeah. the top. Like yeah. him, his characterization of it. I think what they're really going to do is cast James Bond and then build the movies around who they've cast. And um, so I think, I don't think we can really predict, you know, unless we're like listing people who we think will be James Bond, which is like a content factory thing, which we just, we just no. aren't into. Um, so, but to go to this specific movie, to what you're talking about with the extra moments placed um, with different characters and say somebody like Q or somebody like Money Penny, right? Where <laughs> <laughs> both of them, both of them were interested in, um, one of whom plays Paddington, so you're extra interested in him. Um, yes. But yes. yes. <laughs> they're they're both really compelling presences on their own playing these characters, right? Like Ben Wishaw is great as Q and Naomi Harris is great as Money Penny. I've never seen Naomi Harris show up in something and and it not being a positive for that movie, you know? Um yeah. and I, they're compelling on their own even though they don't have a ton of screen time. But at this point, now um even though it's only their third Bond movie, we've been aware of these characters and these versions of these characters for 9 years, right? So it's not um, it's just this element of familiarity that that keeps hitting in all of these small elements. Like nobody remembers Rory Kinnear is in four of these Bond movies, but when you see him, you're like that guy. You know, yeah. the guy, the guy who's with M. Um, and yeah. Ray finds fuck that pig in Black. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> um, uh, and Ray finds is his third movie. It's sort of just seeing, um elements from the past even if you don't necessarily remember the nuts and bolts having all of those elements sort of just creates a world that i that i do think is positive and i think um plays into what i'm talking about we're getting more attached to um daniel craig because daniel craig's portrayal of bond simply again because five movies of it you know it's still he has now what he didn't have in in casino royale is building on his um my own like one-way relationship with him as an actor you know like uh the fact that since i was in university he has been james bond you know yeah um and i think that that um adds another element but then um you're right that it does add bloat but i think it also makes those scenes where you're with him even more um potent in that one you've spent more time with him as this character and two there's more of a world for you to um uh to that you know about you know and um i get you could say that that makes it bloated or whatever but i think the fact that he has a team of people um and the fact that um know me is an, an element of that as well even though this is our first movie with her you know the fact that she, he is relying on her is important as well and i think just having all of these different different pieces moving um whether we know are are necessarily with them at the at the moment or not just knowing that they're there and moving around is is really um makes it the movie feel bigger and also makes it feel smaller when you're with just james bond because you're really like laser focused on what he's going through because he has all of these other things to to think about as well you know yeah, yeah, and I think I don't think that the the stuff with Madeline and uh, Matilde, James Bond's daughter, uh, and James Bond in their tearful goodbye at the end was entirely ineffective. But I, watching Q and M and Money Penny kind of realize it and saying goodbye to him, I think, was more effective. Mm. You know, I think that 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 mattered to me more, and I don't know if that's because. Um, 
I really like Ben Wishaw and Ray Fiennes, and I'm yeah, I think Leia Sadu's not bad at what she does by any means, but um, it, it's she's not yeah. Paddington. Yeah, she's she's not Paddington. Is no. what I was trying to say. No. Um, yeah. So I I think that's it's two sides, right? It's they, they've been putting in some legwork of making. Uh, Madeline Swan matter to James Bond and thereby the audience, but I, I just found it more effective with those other three characters I mentioned. And I don't know mm-hmm. um, See, if, I, if that's just more time. Yeah, I think my counterpoint to that is um, I felt the reverse because as soon as they're all in that scene and he's reading a quote from a book, I was just like, "Cool, this is the Dark Knight Rises <laughs> funeral scene," you know. Um, and that not and there. Um, you know, it's and n- these movies have always been pretty heavily influenced. Like Casino Royale is, is Bond Begins. Like I feel like that was probably the most popular joke of two thousand six. Um, actually, no, that's the year Borat came out, but the second most <laughs> <laughs> most popular joke of two thousand six. Um, but uh, but yeah, that one really just sort of like um, I get it, but it it sort of it took me out. Whereas I, at least the other one, we're staring uh, we're staring into Daniel Craig's face as as he's giving what I think is a pretty incredible performance in this movie. Um, and I, I think that ties into, again, the structure of what I'm talking about in that. Um, so in the first half of the movie, obviously it's an action movie. There's going to be some handheld, you know, you can't do everything on a tripod, but the, the thing that I think really drives home, um, a lot of what I'm talking about with this movie is the way that they make choices with the camera in the second second half, specifically towards the finale. And do you remember anything about the look of the scene when he is making breakfast for Matilde? When he wakes up, she wakes him up um, after the very moment, uh, memorable slinky-related power move. Um, <laughs> great, great little touch. It's so funny. But uh, when, uh, when, when he's when making he's breakfast. The apple? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know what you mean, what you're referencing. Okay, so I know the sequence. But. There's been some handheld at this point, but at that moment, it's the movie switches really um, into a strong handheld style throughout the rest of the movie, like and throughout throughout the forest action sequence. Yeah, it really becomes obvious that this is what they're doing because they they really clearly are um, shooting handheld and through a lot of Bond stuff. Um, I would think the majority of it through the uh, Safin's lair is shot handheld. And um, that's really uncommon in um, a Bond movie. And, you know, Qu- Quantum of Solace was, their design was to make it more of a J- Jason Bourne movie to um, mixed effect. But um, even that one didn't lean all the way into the the handheld camera aspect throughout dialogue sequences, right? And I think that the way that the movie is so classical and formalist through the first half in that it's the style that we're used to. It's sort of these these pieces of, of Bond that we know we have to see. We have to um, see him, him drink a martini with Smirnoff, which doesn't seem like something that uh, Bond would ever put in a martini. Um, him, We have to see him wear a tux. We have to see him do that that thing where he's just sitting in a car that's being shot at and he's totally unmoved by it. You know, um, We get all of those out of the way and those are all shot like a very classical sort of Bond movie. And as we get further on, we're sort of getting a lot of handheld stuff. We're following him up this staircase, you know, we're getting these sort of, um, this sort of interior look at him. And I think the way that um, just that simple choice, which 
probably made the movie easier to make in those sequences, you know, because <laughs> you can just kind of move faster. Um, I think it really sort of ties us with him, you know, because handheld is just inherently uh, reminds you of documentary filmmaking, right? Like that's just the yeah. idea when I say handheld, it's being held by a human, right? So it takes you out of this sort of God's eye view that most of these Bond movies have where you look at Spectre, you look at Skyfall, Skyfall specifically because Roger Deakins movies always look like they're shot by God, you know, like the, the camera is very set. This is the frame, you know, and no time to die that this, this sort of handheld decision um, takes us takes us further into it, you know, and it's not like there's no static shots throughout the the third act but um i think the way that they do that and the way that they do that specifically with james bond is really cool and it starts on that breakfast sequence because you know it's a new day for bond like his whole life has changed um at that moment and i think that it's it seems some again like in this long list of things that if you wrote them out and on a piece of paper and slipped it to me before I saw the movie, I would say, oh, this is a corny decision. It's never going to work. It works so well. And I think like as I was following through the finale and getting like really involved in it, and I was like, why do I care this much? And I I think that's why. I think it's because it feels like um, they totally shook up the, the style of the movie. You know, we're with him in his sequences, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's as a result of him being... Um, like grounding that character as now a the potential father slash actual father. Exactly. And um and I think something that's a really cool choice that um happens in this in this bit is um I can I can tell you the moment when I realized like, oh, I'm very invested in this movie. And it's during the conversation where he's with um he's on his knees in front of Safin and Safin's holding Matilde. Um and they're having this conversation that's shot in a very um I would say conventional way, like that sort of classical form where it's just shot, reverse shot, they're static shots. And, and, um, it's when Safin is saying, you know, we're not doing the conversation. (laughs) You're not that different. You and I, um, and what's interesting is when Bond says, no, we are a bit different. We, we've been sort of lulled into this shot, reverse shot feeling, but do you remember this close up where I'm going to describe it as a Michael Bay close up um, where it is framed just uh, above the bottom of his chin and just above the his his eyebrows, a close up of Daniel Craig. And it's just like the camera is right in his face in a way that I can't think of in a Bond movie, you know, um, and it's when I believe he's talking about how. um you know, but I'm not able to take notes because I'm in, in a movie theater, but it's some element of how he's describing how they're they're not the same, you know? And, yeah. and yeah. Um, at this point, Safin is holding Matilde and, and he's got proof of how they're not the same or he's holding proof of how they're not the same and all these things. And um, Safin never gets a, a reverse shot that matches Bond. And then we get another... Um, close-up that's not quite as close-up of Bond but is definitely handheld and and sort of again tying into that sort of more inherently humanistic feel of handheld cinematography again Safin never gets the shot reverse shot and I think that even though it's the third time in the in this series in a row that they've done that conversation between the villain and the hero the way that it has been shot is different you know and it's not like there's nothing um, interesting in how it's done in Spectre, right? Because there's a, I think they have reflection of each other over, um, I think Blofeld and Bond are reflected on each other in, in when they first meet in Spectre. 
um, at some point, sort of like how uh, they use reflections in Blade Runner 2049 as well. But um, but the that sort of difference in the way that the the uh, hero and villain conversation is shot was really cool and stark and i really loved it and i think it it drives home the point of that scene in a way that um the previous two versions haven't you know and i thought that was really cool it shows like the slight but key difference between hero and villain it's the human touch you know yeah which is what handheld camera work is yeah i think i think all that is is right and i don't think i have uh as good of eye for that stuff as you do but i think that that's that's all true and then that is compelling in an emotional way and then later um you'll remember this i'm sure but we kind of get some longer takes as he's climbing this tower to get to that engineering room to open the blast doors or plot 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 yeah um some of that fighting where it's done in one take and handheld i think is some of the best hand-to-hand stuff in this movie i Mm -hmm. mean there's some cool um some cool action cuba and you know some of the bigger chase stuff but that I think is some of the best um, of that that I remember seeing in Bond in a long time too. So that um, that was another way that it feels less Bondy but more compelling and more interesting and just vis- visually very cool. I agree, and also that's an element. That's a moment where um, we get sort of a, a callback slash repeat of the Bond losing his hearing, albeit for a shorter amount of time. Even right. Though, yeah. 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 Um, and yes, of of course, I enjoyed that sequence. Uh, yeah, but but longer everything. takes and held and handheld and up closer and just a lot more of that sort of um, <laughs> intimacy in a way. Absolutely, no, I agree, and um, and it's also it's all the more powerful because it feels so different from my vision of how Bond movies look, you know, and um, and it's really compelling, and I think. Um, we should one mention the director's name at some point in this podcast, Gary, <laughs> Gary Joji Fukunaga, um, who I think makes some very good decisions in this movie and his uh, cinematographer, Lena Sandgren, who um, shot La La Land, uh, First Man. He shot a bunch of um, David O. Russell's movies like American Hustle as well. But uh, La La Land and First Man are two of the best shot movies that you'll ever see and bringing him into this is, is uh, this Bond movie and and asking him to shoot it like La La Land is a really cool idea and I <laughs> loved it and I love that sort of um, the way that just look at faces in this movie and they're always the skin tones the way that they're able to he's able to bring out like pinks and purples in people's faces in a way that is just so gorgeous um, it's almost like this sort of art house version of the way Michael Bay and Tony Scott movies looked in the in the mid 90s where it's just like the colors are a little too saturated and it's a little unrealistic and but it's something about it just works you know everything's a little too pink and a little too blue and Rob Hardy again who shot uh, Mission Impossible Fallout which I think is like an, a staggeringly beautiful movie um, does a lot of the same things but sort of cranks it a little bit further but um, what Lena Sangren does in this movie with color I think is just so gorgeous and compelling and the fact that um, you know blues and pinks are the are dusk and uh, sunrise sort of feels you know and this movie is a twilight movie and everybody knows it is and this movie sort of exists in permanent twilight and i think that's that's a really cool decision you know and um it's always it's always an an ending and a new beginning simultaneously no even when it's 
uh, M sitting alone in his MI6 office talking to a TV screen. You know, like it's yeah. the blues still really pop. Yeah. 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 Um, and I think that uh, I just want to talk a little bit more about Daniel Craig, who um, I think that I just want to point out that the way that he plays James Bond to me in this movie, the, how we've been talking about the structure and the artifice stripping away. I think he does all of that in his performance as the movie is ongoing in a way that um, is really interesting. And again, as the movie keeps progressing and, and we're getting more shots like right in his face of him emoting i think that um that you're right there with him and that he's able to sell these things and in a way that i haven't seen him sell stuff like this before um i found that really compelling and the way that um even towards the end right he when he's having his final confrontation with safin um he's both uh or sorry the first confrontation with safin where they're sitting across from each other he's both his typical bond character in that he you know he gets his small gun and and shoots his way out of it but he's also a new more human version of it with that sort of discussion the way that it's shot that i was describing to you earlier um but then later on in his final confrontation with safin we get him being his more human self he's trying to to excuse me save everybody or whatever um but realistically just get back to madeline and matilde and he is sort of this new, more human version of himself. But then he is still that cold Bond who just kills everybody. Like the way he kills Safin is like something that would happen in Casino Royale or Quantum of Solace. And I thought that yeah. was this really cool way to do a callback to how he's been for 15 years, you know? Um, but, and I think that's got to be so difficult as an actor to do. Um, I don't understand anything about acting, but I think I think, <laughs> I think it is, I think he's he's so good and... Um, and I think the the fact that this movie works while he's um, making his way back up to the the uh, blast doors uh, both times, I think it's because we just want him to succeed. We want to follow him. And it's just movie stardom, you know, but there's just something about that sequence, both <laughs> both halves of that sequence where it, it, there's just an emotion to it that feels legitimate. It feels earned in a way that um, I truly did not expect, you know? Yeah. And I think what you're describing is the, the balancing act of taking a character that's 60 years old mm-hmm. and trying to make something feel modern and make just, just how different acting was then and how different filmmaking was to, to bring this arguably the most, I mean, one of the most iconic characters, definitely one of the most iconic franchises in film history. Mm-hmm. Um, to still have emotional resonance and um, feel contemporary to such a starkly different audience while still doing its best to be true to the parts of, uh, you know, the quintessence of the franchise um, that we still want to keep around, I think is that balancing act. And I think that Okinawa and Craig both, have to nail it here and they do yeah exactly and also his performance once he's um he's stabbed by the vial or whatever that safin has like yeah um that's legitimately affecting you know and i think i think that um at that point you know we're getting like violin swells and everything hans is going full 1940s hollywood on us you know and um again something that could so easily be corny but it's just so 
it works so well and just the the sadness in his eyes is so real and um and i found it really cool and then of course the the coolest element of that and maybe the thing that i'm even more attached to is the idea of this character who famously uh can like will not settle down uh cannot commit it chooses that um because he can no longer touch two specific people he's not really going to try that hard to to get out of here and i thought that that playing with uh playing simultaneously with legacy and um with the legacy of the character and also uh daniel craig's own performance i thought it was just uh, really incredible in a the a, a type of scene that is almost never emotional you know yeah, that this, you know, the way we've been talking about some stuff we just overlook and expect not to, you know, feel intrigued by in this state, in this very franchise, to have that done properly, I think is what we've been waiting for. For sure. And the one last thing that I want to talk about is just sort of the presence of tunnels um, in this movie is um, really a cool, interesting motif that I think that they're doing. Um, and, you know, like at, at the very beginning, I'm talking about how the, um, we have all the time in the world line, how they're like driving into a dark tunnel, but we see them come out of it, you know? Like, and the uh, the whole finale is just straight up tunnels. You know, they're just going through one tunnel after another. And I think, um, I think part of the reason why the layer is designed that way and why the structure of that sequence is that way is I think it's playing on the Bond logo, right? Where you've got the Bond logo of this this. Um, gun barrel which is a very visually similar to a tunnel right um, and yeah. at the beginning of this logo it's just a bunch of different targets moving around right a bunch of different paths narrowing into one uh, that leads to death by a James Bond shooting you to start the movie <laughs> you know and um, and I think this the way that this movie visually continually shows James Bond going um, through tunnels and all these things I think that is meant to sort of imply you know at some point after you're making all of these choices throughout throughout life um and in James Bond's version his his this particular kind of life um and after making enough choices down this path you're kind of left you're you're after following this sort of particular sort of tunnel you're left with one exit right and um it just ends up being this this one <laughs> this one tunnel that you get to go down and even though you are still you still get to do the gun barrel uh iconic shot in the in the finale while you're wearing your your sweater which is not a suit which i really enjoyed um but uh you still get that but like it's and then he just goes up the the ladder into another tunnel and he's just constantly um trying to get out of somewhere and i thought that was just a really a really cool visual motif and a way to tie tie it into a logo that has been around since 1960 in a way that also ties into the theme of the movie and that this is a tunnel he doesn't get out of you know he, i mean he, he gets out but he doesn't really choose to yeah. try and try and make the the magic uh dive or whatever um and i thought that was really cool and the way that matilde and uh madeline go into um a tunnel at the end of the movie well then beginning to tell the story, you know, of of uh, the legend. You know, I thought that was a, yeah. a really cool choice. And again, a sort of visual motif that is carried throughout the movie that um, in a way that is uncommon and um, in this type of movie. And uh, and I just thought it was really cool. And even, even though there's like a theme of people scurrying around underground in Skyfall, you know, like the rats underground, it's just this movie... I know it's doing a lot of the same things that that other Bond movies have done, but it's just doing it better. It's making it more human. And 
I think it's it's those subtle differences, like the difference between him saying we have all the time in the world at the beginning and him saying you have all the time in the world at the end. I think yeah. the literally one word is different. And I think sometimes with a character that's been around for as long as this one has been, um, both Daniel Craig's version of it and the character full stop uh, or overall, um, I think it just sort of, I don't know, just changing one changing one word in the sentence really can pack a pretty big punch, you know? Yeah, no, no, no. I think that's absolutely correct and ties into so many of those things we've talked about with with the legacy of it and making the changes when you can. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, thanks for listening to the McGuffman. Be sure to check back next time when we'll be predicting who will be the next James Bond. Mm-hmm.